And as we continue in our study of Ephesians tonight, we're going to be looking at what we might refer to as the mystery of the gospel. Before we go too far, we need to make sure that we have an understanding of what the Bible is talking about when we see the word mystery or mysterion, which is the Greek word that gets translated as mystery. So according to Strong's lexicon, when the word uh, mysterion or mystery is used in reference to God, it refers to, quote, the secret counsels which govern God in dealing with the righteous, which are hidden from ungodly and wicked men, but plain to the godly. And that gives us a good hint as to what mystery means just in general in the Bible. It refers to something that is beyond natural knowledge, especially in the context that we're looking at tonight. It's something that's beyond natural knowledge. Rather, it's not something to be solved. Rather, it's something that needs to be opened to us, revealed to us by divine revelation through the Holy Spirit. This is what we call the doctrine of illumination or divine illumination. For 2,000 years between Abraham and Christ, the blessings and the covenants of God applied primarily to the Jews. And Paul had said in the previous chapter, in chapter 2, that during this time the Gentiles were, quote, alienated, he said, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that was immediately followed by a contrast. But God. But now. We see it twice. That God makes a change. God institutes some type of change. And both Jews and Gentiles alike were reconciled to God through the atonement for sin, which is found in Christ Jesus. So Paul apparently felt the need to explain a few things before he would pray once again for the church. We saw a prayer in the previous chapter, but he's going to pray again in this chapter, and that prayer is going to start in verse 14. And he tries to start this prayer in verse 1, but his attention then immediately gets diverted. He gets distracted. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together, Ephesians chapter 3. Verses 1 and 2, it says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, and let's just stop there. It feels like we should go on, right? Because here's the, 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 the main noun, I, for this reason I, Paul, I, Paul what? And it looks like he, he doesn't, say anything you see how it begins with for this reason i paul and then he goes just in a completely different direction it looks like he doesn't finish his thought he doesn't finish his sentence but if you glance down at verse 14 with me you'll see that he picks it up again verses 14 and 19 he says this it's almost like a continuation he says for this reason i bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There's the prayer. But do you see how he tries to kind of start at the beginning of the chapter, and then all of a sudden he's going off in a different direction? He's, he's diverted by his title. 
and his circumstances momentarily. What was his title? Well, he was an apostle. But before that, and more foundational to that, was the fact that he was a slave or a servant of Christ. And his faithfulness to Christ had landed him in jail or, or in prison chains more than once. And so maybe the readers, maybe his audience, maybe he, he got the sense that his audience would be wondering why somebody like Paul would be in prison. I mean, it seems kind of reasonable to ask if God is really on, uh, on Paul's side, then why was he thrown in jail? So why would he have ever been in jail? He tells us in verse 2, on behalf of you Gentiles. He's in jail on their behalf. In other words, he's there for their sake. He's there because he preached the mystery of the gospel which leveled the playing field between the Jews and the Gentiles and it opened the doors of salvation for God to bless all the families of the earth, all the, the families and the nations of the earth, not just Israel, not just the Jews. Now there's no record that Paul, in, in Scripture, there's no record that Paul was ever jailed when he was in Ephesus. Although, based on what he says here in verses 1 and 2, it, it seems like he might have been writing this from jail. Uh, Acts chapter 18 tells us about how he traveled to Ephesus and went to the synagogues to try to persuade the Jews that Christ was the Messiah, but we're never told that doing so landed him in any sort of deep trouble, like going to jail and being imprisoned for a prolonged period of time. And so as Paul writes this, you know, there's some different possibilities. Maybe he was imprisoned in Ephesus, and the book of Acts doesn't record it. That's an argument from silence, but it's still, it's a possibility. Uh, there are several clues that hint at the possibility that that's the case, including the text that we're looking at right here. Um, maybe Paul wrote to them when he was in prison someplace else. We know that when he wrote to the Philippians, he wrote to them from jail. He, he was in prison chains, chained to a Roman guard. Uh, and maybe he wrote this letter kind of at the same time. Or maybe he wasn't in jail as he wrote this, but he had been in jail prior to writing this at some point or another. Uh, so he could say that, you know, he's been a prisoner, so he, you know, the name sticks. Whatever the case, Paul considered himself to be a servant or a slave to Christ, and he was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the Gentiles, is what he starts out by telling us here. And by the way, I think it's worth noting that he calls himself a prisoner of Christ rather than a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of the, the, the Roman authorities or, or, or whatever. And this was because being a faithful servant of Christ was what got him imprisoned. He was there ultimately because that's where God wanted him to be. He was there for Christ, because Christ wanted him there. Paul was the kind of person, though, who was willing to say, God, whatever you want me to do, as long as you'll go with me, I'm willing to go, so send me and come with me. He was eager to be used by God for the sake of advancing God's purposes. How about you? Do you have that mentality? Are you, are you willing to be a faithful steward of the gospel even though it might cost you something how willing are you to take the gospel into hostile territory now it used to be that you had to go across the ocean to do that but now you just have to go across the street now you just have to go to your next door neighbor 
And yet, whenever Paul was imprisoned, he was always filled with joy. Whether he was a free man, whether he was in prison, it didn't matter. He was always filled with the same joy, the same exuberance that characterized him throughout. He not only instructs us to rejoice in the Lord always in Philippians, but he models that for us in the fact that we can rejoice in Christ even in the midst of hardship and persecution, a principle which I suspect the American church is going to have to learn in a much more real a much more tangible, a much more practical sense in the coming years compared to previous years. But the truth is that all Christians, Paul or, or the people that he's writing to or, or us today, all Christians will face some degree of persecution and tribulation in this age, on, on, on this side of the cross. There's always going to be persecution in this age. It's nothing new. But that's exactly why we need to see these things. We need to learn to see these things from God's perspective. Because when we have God's perspective, we can know and we can experience the joy of the Lord regardless of our circumstances. What kind of joy is it if it's contingent upon our circumstances? That's that's not the type of joy that, that Paul had. That's not the type of joy that I want. But that's the type of joy that Paul had because... He knew that wherever he he went, whatever his circumstances were, it was God's will. So the fact that Paul saw himself first and foremost as a Christian, as being in Christ, belonging to Christ, is foundational to what he says here in verse 2. It says again, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. So why was the, the, the grace of God given to Paul? Well, in one sense, we can rightfully say that it was given to him for the glory of God, for the glory of Christ. And that can be said of every single Christian who's ever lived. But in another sense, the grace of God was given to Paul for the sake of the Gentiles, for the sake of bringing the gospel message to these people who had been alienated from God, from the covenants, for so long. And so as far as as Paul was concerned, the grace that he received was not primarily for his own benefit. It was for the benefit of others. That's deep. That's deep. Man, I, I, I wish we all had this perspective. That the grace that we've been given, yes, it is for the glory of God. But it is first and foremost for for the glory of God. But after that, it's for the benefit of others. It's to bless and to serve others. You know, it's so easy to focus on all the benefits that we receive in being recipients of God's grace. And they are great. And they are wonderful to think of. But we also must know this and live in light of this principle. And that's this. If God has saved you, He has also called you and He has also gifted you to serve Him by serving His people in some capacity. I'll say it again. If God has saved you, He's also called you and He's also gifted you to serve Him by serving His people in some capacity. And sometimes in certain cultural contexts, that might mean trouble. That might mean persecution. If and and when that happens, we must remember not only that God is always with us, 
but that he also never treats us unfairly. And he never sends us into the, into the storms of life or into the trials of life. He never, he never brings hardships into our life without there being a loving purpose on his part. And so in Paul's case, sometimes being a faithful steward of the gospel message meant being imprisoned. But Paul saw, saw that as being just par for the course. Perfectly in line with God's goodness. Perfectly in line with God's sovereignty. Purposely in line with advancing God's purposes. So what was Paul's calling and gifting? To preach, right? To preach and to be a minister of the gospel. And preaching is just one of many things that God gifts people with. Of course, it's a responsibility that, that all of us have to proclaim the gospel, to preach the gospel, to talk about the gospel. But some are more gifted than others, and that's something that I'm reminded of every time I listen to great preachers like Paul Washer or Vadi Bochum or, or Stephen Lawson. But Paul knows that that's his calling, to be a faithful minister of the gospel. And he's going to mention it in verse 7. So let's continue by looking at verses 3 to 7. He says that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. So here Paul kind of reveals where uh, or how this mystery of the gospel came to him where he got it from. And he says it was, re, it was revealed to him. It was through revelation, he says in verse 3. It wasn't because he was so smart. It wasn't because he was so cunning. It wasn't because he was so creative. It wasn't even because he was so worthy. No, it was revealed to him by God and by the grace of God. And that's all that you can really say about it. That's all he says about it. It was revealed to him by grace. And what is this mystery that he keeps talking about? Look at verse 6. He basically says, let me be really specific about it. The mystery is important, and he needed to be clear, he needed to be specific about it because the spiritual health of the churches that he was writing to was at stake here. As a minister of the gospel, by the grace of God, Paul's responsibility included explaining God's purposes and intent to, here's the mystery, to redeem and to create a people for himself. A people which would consist of both Jews and Gentiles who are all redeemed in the same way by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the same purpose, for the glory of God alone. And it's something which he tells us in verse 5, was hidden or, or was not revealed uh, it wasn't made clear, or wasn't made known to people in previous generations. So the mystery is this, verse 6, there are three parts. Number one, the mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles in the church are fellow heirs. Secondly, the mystery is that they are 
fellow members of the body, the Jews and Gentiles. And third, the mystery is that the Jews and the Gentiles are fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. Now this might not seem like such a shock to us today, but you're talking about people groups with hundreds, if not a couple thousand years of animosity and bitterness toward one another. Really, this started with Esau, you know, the, the Edomites, uh, becoming a people group. You, you could even trace it back a little further, maybe, the Ishmaelites and the Jews. And Paul's explaining, you're co-heirs. You've been brought back together. These, these separations, these divisions that you've seen over the last 2,000 years have been eliminated. They're done away with. You're now co-heirs. They are completely and totally, not just heirs, but they are reconciled to each other. Not because of anything that they did, not because of any restitution or reparations that were made toward one another, by one another, but it based entirely on what Christ Himself did to reconcile man, not only to God, but to one another. And that's very important for us in our culture. And in this day and age, to understand, it's very under, important for us to understand this principle because there is a growing sense of racial tension in the church today. And it is currently at levels that are unprecedented in most of our lifetimes, depending on where you lived. If you lived in the South you know, 30 or 40 years ago, it was still there. But overall, the levels of racism in the church today are unprecedented in, in our lifetimes. And many within the church have taken this Marxist approach that one group of people has systematically, in in the culture, oppressed another group of people. And so the demands being made on the one side include the idea that all people of one skin color need to repent and apologize for all the wrongs that were done by their ancestors and by people of the same skin color. And what this does is it puts people in the church Christians who have been reconciled to each other by Christ. It puts them into a category based on the color of their skin, regardless of their own personal history or regardless of their own personal actions. And this actually came to a boiling point this past week when one of these these cultural neo-Marxists wrote a blog for the Gospel Coalition titled, We Await Repentance for Assassinating Dr. King. And in this article, the author writes this. He says, quote, My white neighbors and Christian brethren can start by at least saying their parents and grandparents and this country are complicit in murdering a man, Martin Luther King Jr., who only preached love and justice. End quote. So regardless of what you have personally done, regardless of what your your parents personally did, or your grandparents personally did, if you're a white person, you need to be apologizing for the white culture that existed 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago just because you're white, according to this. Now now just to show how, how wrong and how deeply sinful and offensive this is, let me ask this. Let's say hypothetically, that I have an ancestor who was a prominent abolitionist. Do I have to apologize for him? He was white, 
but he fought to free slaves. Do I have to apologize for what he did and who he was? Of course not. That's, that's absolutely ridiculous. This is totally contrary to anything that the Bible ever teaches. It serves man's purposes, but it does not serve God's purposes. In fact, I would say it is totally contrary to God's purposes. And so I stand here today to warn you that this type of rhetoric is on the rise. It's increasing, and as it does, the church is becoming more and more divided in America. This type of rhetoric is, is completely contrary to the gospel of grace. The basis of our reconciliation with our brothers and sisters in Christ is not based on me repenting or apologizing for something that my ancestors did. That isn't biblical at all. Paul isn't saying that we can be reconciled to one another if we do this and this and this and this. He's saying that we are reconciled to one another. And the reconciliation with fellow Christians that is inherent in the gospel is not that I can be reconciled to my, my brothers and sisters who have more, more or less melanin than I do in my skin if I do this and that. No, the reconciliation that we have with one another is based entirely on what Christ has done for all of us who are in Him by grace. If I have to earn reconciliation with somebody that I haven't personally sinned against, if I have to buy it, if I have to somehow deserve it in any way, it's fake. It's totally fake because if I have to earn it or deserve it or buy it, it's not grace. It's not grace. It's the opposite of grace. Now, there is a place for interpersonal reconciliation to take place. You know, if, if I go and I sin against somebody, you better believe that I have some kind of obligation, some degree of obligation to apologize and maybe even make restitution. If you think of Zacchaeus, for example, when he gets converted, he says, man, I have, I've stolen all this money from all these people as a tax collector, so what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to pay everybody back and then some. He's willing to make restitution because he personally sinned against these people. All this type of racial rhetoric does, all this stuff does, is turn everyone in, 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 in one of those two categories into a victim who has a long laundry list of injustices that weren't even done by the people they demand an apology from. And their identity as a victim is based on the color of their skin, not on something that was done to them personally. Friends, Scripture is very clear about this. We are united. We, we are reconciled to our brothers and sisters in Christ on the basis of Christ's work. And Paul knew that there were long-standing, long-standing, longer, longer than this country's even existed, long-standing walls of hostility between the Gentiles and the Jews. Let me ask you this. How, how could they be reconciled? To one another in light of this long, long history of sinning against one another and sometimes even oppressing one another. Did the Edomites ever oppress Israel? Of course they did. Yeah, they did. So how could, how could you possibly uh, make restitution? How could you possibly be reconciled? There is only one way 
to reconcile thousands of years of injustice. And that is grace. Grace. Forgiving one another. That's why he instructs them. He's going to instruct them in the next chapter. In chapter 4, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There is no room, there is no place for division within the body of Christ. We must love one another, we must forgive one another the same way that Christ has loved and forgiven us. And that is by grace, not by merit. Remember that being in Christ is the foundation of your identity. And it's the same for every single one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of their age, regardless of the color of their skin. And so we must be quick to reconcile to to forgive. We must be slow to get angry, especially toward one another. We must be eager to love, eager to serve one another, regardless of how many generations worth of hostilities may exist between us and our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And we must never, ever, ever sin by making hasty and undeserved generalizations about others, whether they're in the body of Christ or not, based on their age, or their ethnic heritage. Grace is what wipes away all the walls that would divide us. And that's God's design for the church. That we would live in harmony with one another because of grace. Because of grace. Because without grace, it's impossible. All you'll have is you'll, you'll have an endless laundry list of injustices that have to be made right somehow. Listen, if, if you are in Christ, it is entirely by grace. That's the only reason anybody is in Christ, is because of grace. Because every single one of us only deserved God's wrath. And we rebelled and we sinned against God every nanosecond of our existence. And if you understand how unworthy you are of God's forgiveness, you won't hesitate to forgive others who are far, far more worthy of your forgiveness than you were of God's forgiveness, even before they ask for it. You don't keep a record of offenses. And you don't make a laundry list of conditions that must be met before you forgive them. The only condition needed is knowing that Christ has forgiven you. So let me, share, uh, let me close by sharing a tweet that was made by a guy named Kyle J. Howard from this past week. And I warn you, it's, it's hurtful. I, I find it hurtful. He said, quote, White evangelicalism, if it wants to become a true ally to black community, it must begin investing financial resources owed, in parentheses, owed, back into it. It must begin not only by giving its word, but action through financial investment into black saints. End quote. Anybody miss the divisions that are inherent in what this guy's saying? And financial restitution is owed? Did Paul ever say such a thing to the early church? To owe is is the opposite of grace. If if you feel the, the sense to owe 
that's, that's totally contrary to grace. This ideology is completely contrary to the Gospel. Listen very carefully to what Paul said to the Corinthians who knew very well what division was all about. As some of them claimed to follow Peter and some of them claimed to, to follow Apollos and some of them claimed to, to follow Jesus and some of them claimed to follow Paul. Listen to the words that the Holy Spirit spoke to them through Paul's pen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. He says, He, that is Christ, He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, in other words, since we live for the glory of God alone, or the glory of Christ alone, therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Other translations will say we, regard, we don't regard people according to the flesh. What does it mean to recognize or regard somebody according to the flesh? It means to make assumptions about them based on their ethnicity. There's no place for that in either direction in the church. And Paul was a steward of this mystery. The gospel message of reconciliation, first with God, and secondly with man, with, with brothers and sisters in Christ. And as this message was faithfully passed on, to the Ephesians, and they faithfully passed it on to the next generation, and to this day it's been faithfully passed on to us. We too have a responsibility to pass it on. The challenge is to make these truths personal to ourselves. To, make them, to, to live them out and to see, see the way that the grace of God changes everything. How it eliminates hostility, even when hostility is justifiable. And how He's called us and He's gifted us for service unto one another through the working of His awesome power in us. So may God bless us by sustaining and growing the sense of unity that we have here within the body that we may be faithful. And that the church may be undivided. That Christ would be glorified. Let's pray. Our Father, I confess to you that I am so grieved about the divisions rising up in the church in America. And so I pray, Lord, for the future of not just this country, but for the, the leaders, the Christian leaders who come together and do conferences. I pray, Lord, that this, um, this false social gospel would be squashed. But, Lord, we pray for ourselves that we would understand the truths that we talked about tonight. That we are only in Christ by grace. May that be a reality that we grasp and that we live by. And may it keep us not only humble, but may it keep us quick to forgive. May it keep us quick to be restored with one another when wrongs happen and when people are sinned against. We pray for our unity, Father, across 
ethnicities, across multiple generations, across every social strata. We pray that you would be glorified by the unity of your bride, that you sent Christ to die for and to redeem. Forgive us, Lord, for times when we want to take matters into our own hands and forget that you promised that vengeance is yours and that anything that's, that's done wrong, you'll deal with those things. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you that it's by grace alone that we come to you, to worship you, to live for you, for the glory of Christ. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.